Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show. Alrighty then, let's get to it. Today we are going to learn about the power of our words and how reading aloud impacts both our hearts and our minds. My first guest today is Megan Cox Gurdon. Let's join the conversation. My next guest, Megan Cox Gurdon, is going to share with us. She is the author of a book entitled The Enchanted Hour, The Miraculous Power of Reading Aloud in the Age of Distractions. She's also the children's book critic for The Wall Street Journal. Her essays and criticism have appeared widely in publications such as The Washington Examiner, The San Francisco Chronicle, The Washington Post, and National Review. She also is a hero in my eyes because she has five children and has read to all of them from the moment they have arrived. Hi, Megan. Thanks for joining me on the show. Oh, Lisa, I'm so happy to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Oh, me too. When your book came across my desk, I was like, oh my goodness, because I I did something many years ago when I first started working in addiction and trauma recovery that felt very intuitive and I had no reason as to the why. And that was, I would return to this one um, rehab center around eight or nine o'clock at night, and I would read to the clients out of Anne Lamott's books, Fireside, before they went to sleep. And it was such a successful little group. And I never knew the why. I thought I, you know, I had an idea as to the why it worked so well. And here, here to tell us, because there is something to this being read aloud or reading aloud Oh, there is so much to it. It's possible that it's a little hubristic to say that it's a miraculous power, but I used that in the subtitle because I think there's no other way to describe or no better way to describe the multifaceted ways that reading aloud kind of engages us as as human beings and as creative and imaginative beings. The experience that you had with those kids sounds uh, exactly right. I'm sure I would guess that you found it uh, a wonderful way to connect with them and also a way to kind of free them from the hurly burly of their of their own kind of states of mind and the busy days that they may have had or the difficult days that they may have had. It was a way for you to do something for them. And for them, I would guess it was a way to be soothed and rocked and to rest from the, again, the turbulence of their own lives. So many things happen when we read aloud. And I mean, of course, it's a wonderful thing to do with babies and toddlers and little kids. But as you found, it also it works its magic and its sort of miraculous power on people of all ages. 
I mean, I can break it down for you if you'd like. I mean, there are all sorts of ways of, of looking at it. Uh, when I was working on the book, I was trying to think, how do you take this single unitary experience, you know, the reading of a text by one person, which then travels through the air, as it were, you know, on on somebody else's words into the ears of the listener? How do you take a single experience and hold it up and turn it almost like a gem, you know, like looking at the different facets? And that was eventually the approach I took. It doesn't lend itself to easy understanding. And at the same time, it's completely, as you say, intuitive. So one of the things that happens is that there is a physiological reward when two people sit down, or it could be more than two, of that just that human companionship in a kind of calm way has uh, an immediate effect on hormones. Uh, the stress hormone cortisol decreases in both reader and listener, and the bonding hormone oxytocin, which is so comforting, right, uh, increases. So right away, you know, two people sit down with a book and there's this, ah, you know, this moment. So that's that's one piece of it. Another is, and I think that, um, you know, this is this is uh, not enormously well understood in the context of reading aloud, but there is a kind of phenomenon called neural coupling. So that when storyteller and listener are experiencing a story at the same time, they're not just, uh, you know, one person reading the other person listening, their brains are actually synchronizing. Yeah. And again, you know, isn't that remarkable? And so, again, it's as though we we join in this way. There's, it's like the the words, the book, the moment, the enchantment of that separate time, is a place of encounter that is, you know, miraculous. It's Rumi's field. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's, I mean, there are metaphors galore. I we can also talk about it. I sometimes do as as a bridge, particularly in times of life or in circumstances when and maybe you found this with the kids you were reading to when when real life is a little tough, when conversation is a bit difficult. It might be when you have a very turbulent toddler or you have a very turbulent adolescent or you yourself are in some kind of turbulence <laughs> or or you're reading with somebody who is in a hospital bed or at the end of life when, you know, so much of our conversation takes place in the present and the future. Right. We talk about like, what are you going to do? What do you think of this? Where are you guys going next year? But if somebody in a time of turbulence feels as though their kind of their their horizon is foreshortened or if they're at the end of life and their horizon is literally foreshortened. You know, reading aloud is like a bridge over that difficulty. And again, it's a place of encounter where you can be together, but not having to make conversation. Although, of course, conversation can be a lovely side effect and very productive when we're talking about children. But, you know, it's a, it's like a, a, a place of escape where you are together. And, of course, then we haven't we haven't even talked about what we're reading. You know, the choice of book can be, you know, plays its own part in things and in, in connecting us to one another. The idea of being fully present, I think, is the other. If we want to talk about the buzzword of mindfulness, right, that when we are in this read aloud dynamic, the listener is fully present, the reader is fully present, and no one's meditating, but they're meditating. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, you know, I, I came across, I'm, I'm sure you're a very uh, well aware of it, this, this, this theory called self-determination theory, which is, which holds that, you know, human beings need three, we have three intrinsic needs that have to be satisfied if we are to feel happy, you know, and fulfilled. And, um, and these three things are, we need to feel competent at what we do. We need to feel authentic in our lives and we need to feel connected to others. 
And, you know, reading aloud hits all three of these things. The more we read, particularly, I would say, as, you know, as a mother, the more you read aloud, the, the better you get at it. That's competence, right? You're, as you say, present in the moment. You're, you're, you've, you're giving your attention both to the person you're with or the people and also to this text, which is where you're meeting them, you know, and, and, and you're giving them full attention and that's authenticity. And then, of course, the connections that you build, you know, emotionally, but also imaginatively, the library of stories that you build up between yourselves, you know, the jokes, the common characters and, and settings and things, you know, that's connection. So on these three very important needs that we need to satisfy, you know, in a single enchanted hour, bang, you can knock them all out. Yeah, this is beautiful. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, you do something because it feels right. You have no idea, you know, the no understanding at the time, because this is going back a decade as to the why it works. And then, you know, boom, here you are explaining the why. I actually stumbled into this, maybe as a lot of people do in life. I had, I was very fortunate to have a role model. Um, I mean, my parents had read to me, but I didn't have any real memory of it because they stopped reading to me as soon as I could read to myself. And I was an early reader. So, you know, maybe at four or five, I wasn't getting the nightly read alouds anymore. But somewhere, obviously it had lodged somewhere. I knew it was, uh, I knew it was something that if I theoretically ever had children, I would probably do. I didn't imagine that I would have five of them. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that's, that's something. <laughs> just, I mean, they just kept turning up. Like, what, how is this happening? Uh, but, um, no, I was lucky to have a role model in a friend who had started having children a few years uh, earlier than I did. And, um, and she had four little boys in very quick succession. And, you know, I, I tell this story in the introduction to the book because it was really, you know, it really matters. We need to have others show us the way sometimes. And and my friend, she actually absented herself from a dinner party at her own house to go and read to her children. And I thought, wow, that is commitment. That is cool. She is putting them and their literacy and story and literature, she's putting that at the heart of the household, you know, even at the momentary, the, you know, the cost of the momentary embarrassment to guests who are like, where is the hostess? She's reading to her kids while everyone else was having drinks. I mean, it was just fantastic. So I had that experience of seeing my friend. Uh, and so I knew, and it was really the only thing, Lisa, that I knew about children when I started having them. Um, I was an only child from a broken home, as my father jokes, kind of a little wryly. And so I didn't grow up around little children. I didn't really know how to relate to them. And this is all coming back to reading aloud, by the way. I'm, I'm sorry to digress in this personal way. but No, it's, it's um, important, I think. <laughs> well, at any rate, there I was. We, we actually were, my husband and I were living in Japan when our first uh, child was born. And I came back to our apartment. And I, again, I knew nothing about how to handle a baby, what to do with this new life. The only thing I knew was to read aloud. And so that was my, you know, my crutch, my, uh, my go-to, the, the thing I could do. I, I, I didn't know how to talk to a baby. I didn't know what was expected of me really. And so the first thing I did when I got back from the hospital with her was to sit down in an armchair and I started reading, uh, Cinderella from the Grimm's fairy tales. Um, and then I burst into tears, which is, of course, what you do when you're a brand new mother at home with your first child. You really don't know what's going on. And you're speaking of hormones. Whoa. And uh, <laughs> so true. <laughs> <laughs> because I just felt ridiculous. Like I'm reading to this tiny pudding. She can't understand anything. But it was again, it was the, it was a way it was a it was my entry point into how to be a mother. And so 
again, I stumbled on reading aloud as a tool for relating to my own child. And so we, you know, we put a good amount of time in every day from the minute she was born. Uh, And it really, it taught me a lot, but it was, it taught me how to interact with her. It taught me what she was interested in. I was able to share with her my understanding of language and, you know, the names for things, right? Color, all the things you do when you're reading with a small baby. These are, for some very lucky people, probably completely instinctive. But for me, I felt that I was groping my way forward into learning how to become a mother. And so, again, I had this the benefit of the role model, and I had uh, this this tool that I could use, and it taught me how to be. And so with the book, you know, one of the things I'm hoping it will achieve is to is to act as that kind of you know, that kind of role model for others to encourage people. I've been really surprised by the number of people who've said, wait, you mean I should read to a baby? Like, yes, yes. Read to the baby. Babies are learning all the time. Babies are, babies need to know things. They need to hear your voice. They need to be engaged. So anyway, there you go. (laughs) Well, the the reading uh, to the babies also, I think, uh, helps with attachment, you know? Oh, for sure. And we know from the science now, we know that newborn babies, their brains are wired to react to the sound, in particular, of their mother's voices. The language circuitry in a baby's brain lights up. Now, I'm told by neurologists that you're not supposed to say lights up. That's actually a a, a flawed understanding of what happens in the brain. But as a layman, I'm clinging to that term. (laughs) (laughs) Ignites, fires up. I mean, we can think of lots of things, but we get the idea. Sparkles, Sparkles to life. Yes, yes. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Megan Cox-Gurdon. We're talking about the Enchanted Hour the Miraculous Power of Reading Aloud in the Age of Distraction. To learn more, please visit her website, MeganCoxGurdon.com. On Twitter, she is at Megan Gurdon. And on Facebook and Instagram, you can find her at The Enchanted Hour. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. Hang on just a second. Before we head out to the break, let's chat a little bit about beauty and BHDs. What I mean by that is bad hair days. If you're anything like me, you take pride in your self-care, but don't have a lot of time to muss or fuss about getting salon quality products. What if you could order custom shampoos and conditioners that are formulated just for you and then have them delivered right to your doorstep? That's where today's sponsorship partner, Function of Beauty, steps in to save the day by turning your BHDs into great hair days. I'm super excited to share this product with you. Function of Beauty has a nifty little quiz that helps identify your personal formula based on hair type, hair goals, and other preferences such as color and scent, or go dye-free and fragrance-free. These products are so personalized they even have your name on the bottle. Function of Beauty is safe all-natural, vegan, and cruelty-free. I love the results which have tamed and nourished my fine and wavy tresses. My personal formula is color-free and filled with aromatic eucalyptus that makes me feel like I'm having a spa staycation with each use. Function of Beauty never uses sulfates, parabens, or any other harmful ingredients. And here's the best part. Listeners of Harvesting Happiness will receive 20% off their first order. Head on over to functionofbeauty.com slash happiness to take the hair profile quiz and get great hair days ahead. Once again, that's functionofbeauty.com slash happiness to get 20% off your custom formula that's as unique as you are. Now here's the break. We'll be right back. And that is a guarantee. 
To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about the power of words and how reading aloud impacts both our hearts and our minds. Let's return to the conversation with my guest, Megan Cox-Gurdon. Megan, when you open the book, you quote Ursula Le Guin, and the quote is, love doesn't just sit there like a stone. It has to be made like bread, remade all the time, made anew. What made you choose that quote and how does it correlate to the, to the enchanted hour? Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm so glad you noticed that because it really, that is very meaningful to me. You know, that idea that love doesn't just sit there is, is one of these truths that are easy to overlook in life. You know, we tend to think of relationships as being established or or not established, right? You have a rocky relationship or you have a strong relationship. Uh, But in reality, all relationships are in some degree of flux at all times. And we each of us have the power to, you know, foster love in ourselves for other people and to kindle love in other people. And we, you know, we have the power to uh, enrich or neglect our relationships depending on the the work that we do. I mean, some of us, we're very lucky. We have friends with whom we can pick up as if nothing has changed after not seeing each other for years. But you know, that's not, that's not, that's not generally the case. And especially in our families, we are, you know, to refer to the, uh, the subtitle of my book, we are in this age of distraction and the enchanted hour, the time of, of coming together without any distractions around us, without our machines, without our devices, just with a book and with a little devotion of time to each other. This is a way of making that bread of love, you know, daily. And we do need to, I say we do need to, I guess it's up to everybody. We all get to decide how much are we going to put into our relationships. One of the arguments I have made uh, when people have asked me about, you know, isn't this expecting too much that we should a parent or, you know, that a husband or wife that we should be reading to each other every day? I mean, we're all very busy. It's not too much to ask of busy, busy people. And the truth is that, you know, if you want to sustain and develop your relationships, it's actually one of the most efficient ways of doing it. Because, because again, it's this it's this mutual giving, right? The giving of the time, the giving of attention. And this enriches us uh, in this you know, physiological and emotional way, but also imaginatively, you know, creatively, language-wise, you know, in, 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 in the stories that we encounter. So it's this tremendously rich experience, and it allows us to make that bread of, of love and improved relationships, you know, every day. And when we talk about the busyness of life, whether it's as a parent, as a partner, um, as a friend, even if for volunteering, I can see where giving oneself to volunteer to read to people that you don't even know creates this same reward loop, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, right. It's the joy of life is not in receiving, right? It's in giving. Yes. And again, that's one of those wonderful truisms that are easy to lose sight of. We think, what do I want? What do I want? What do I want? What do I want? And actually, if I give, I feel better, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and reading is a form of giving, right? You're, give, you're giving of yourself. You're giving of your time. There's no, um, there's no 
finish line, right? Right. With reading. Right. If there's no right. real goal other than being present and reading. Well, I think you that that's true. It's also true that you could, you know, there in a sense there are achievements that are reached uh, through reading aloud, particularly in the context of children, uh, that you could look at as sort of something really very substantial. You know, not just a, a sort of vague esoteric sense of spending time together, but you know, really giving you really equip children for life by reading to them. Oh, agreed. Uh, yes, I mean, yeah, and there's yeah, a lot yeah. of evidence that proves what happens to a child's brain when they are being read to. That's for sure. But as an older person, it's purely for the benefits of the read. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. I see your point. Yes, for sure. For sure. Well, there's that relationship building part. And I have to say, I mean, if you are a person who enjoys reading, uh, reading out loud, as I am, I, I'm a kind of thwarted thespian, so it's natural for me to <laughs> love to do voices and things. You know, it's one of the great pleasures of my life. And in fact, I'll tell you, Lisa, I had a very... This maybe a month ago. I had um, I bumped up against a thing which I I knew was coming someday, and that was my 13 year old daughter, who's my youngest. My oldest is 24, um, so it's a that's the range. She said, "Mummy, do you mind if we don't read in the evenings anymore?" Oh. And I. Oh, oh. I, I tried so hard. I was completely because I'd let her siblings had all done this. You know, at a certain point. They don't necessarily want, I think, to be in that maybe subordinate position. I'm not sure exactly what it is. I mean, some kids will take it all the way through, you know, high school, and some kids just want to be done in middle school or early high school. And, uh, you know, fair enough. Everybody has their opinion. Uh, she was extremely lovely about it, but I had to say, yeah, of course, I understand. It's completely normal. Uh, but you know what? What was interesting there, too, and this is one of the arguments for uh, choosing a time every day that you that you do the reading and then sticking with it is what it means is you have a date with this person in your family every day. So if it's your with your husband at bedtime, you know, you have a reading date. It's also it can be turned into very easily a time to talk about something. And that's what I found with my daughter. She now doesn't want me to read to her in the evenings, but the time is still sacrosanct. She wants us to have, you know, 45 minutes or an hour of conversation in the evenings. So uh, it's again, we're still we get to make that bread, but it's not in the form that I would like it to be, which is me reading to her. It's in the form that she would like, which is now conversation. But it was able to evolve to that place, including her security in her in her own self to speak her truth that she didn't want you to read anymore, but she wanted you, your attention, your conversation. How beautiful yes. is that? I think it's very beautiful. I think it's wonderful. And, you know, it is very easy to lose track of your kids when they get into adolescence. I think a lot of parents do. A lot of us do. It's, I mean, their life, uh, you know, they orient themselves away from you and towards their friends. And now with social media and the internet, they orient themselves there too. And, uh, so, you know, whatever we can do to keep these connections is, uh, I think, very valuable. During the break, you were telling me a story of a couple who had been married for 40 some odd years and the wife reading aloud to the husband. And I was hoping you'd share that. Oh, yes, this was great. I mean, I, I what if the. One of the torments about having written a book is I keep coming across things that I wish I could put in it. And of course, I can't. I was at a speaking engagement and an elderly couple came up to me afterward and they were sort of radiant. And and they said, we have to tell you what has happened to us. Uh, we've been married for, yeah, it was 43, 45 years, something like that. Um, and recently, the husband's 
the husband had been experiencing macular degeneration. So he couldn't read for himself anymore. And so his wife was reading to the two of them, as it were, in the evenings. And they kind of clutched my arm and said, we thought we had a happy marriage, but now we are happier than we've ever been. And we think it's the reading. So, (laughs) So I, of course, marched home that night and I said, Hugo, to my husband, I love you, but I want our marriage to be even happier. So I will now be reading to you in the evenings. And by the way, this not in, not incidentally happened around the same time that my youngest child said that she didn't want me to read anymore. So I was able to sort of turn to <laughs> turn my Klieg light to poor Hugo. Yeah. But actually, it's he he really enjoys it. And, uh, and so we read at night uh, when we've gone to bed. And the only drawback, I would say, is that... Uh, as I'm reading, I can see him subsiding in this incredibly relaxed way. He's being he's being soothed and calmed and and his eyes closed and and he settles down lower and lower on the pillow. And then by the time I finish, you know, I'm reading novels to him. We're reading The Great Gatsby right now. Um, so the chapters are, you know, substantial. By the time I get to the end of the chapter, he's just about in the arms of Morpheus. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, I'm still awake. <laughs> You've given him an audible sleeping pill. <laughs> so I'm not sure if it's it's introduced as a slight feeling of conflict because he now gets to go to sleep earlier than I do. But uh, no, it's it's been it's it's great, and I really I, I highly recommend it. It's a wonderful way to uh, to be together. Oh, I think so, and and it, it needn't be a full hour even. I mean, yes, if we can do that, it's wonderful. But even just reading a little bit of poetry or some inspirational passage to someone we love, this is what I've experienced, you know, that few minutes of connection with these profound words can be soul food. That is exactly, boy, you put it perfectly. That's exactly right. And there is something quite extraordinary that happens when as you say, skillfully put together words on the page are let loose in the air. I I have a chapter in my book about the history of reading aloud, which is by necessarily, of course, a very selective and and brief one. I mean, it's it's storytelling and oral storytelling and reading aloud are as old as the human experience. You know, we know that narrative is one of the human universals in every culture at every time in all of history. We've told stories and we love stories and we love to drink them in and the way that they have principally been transmitted until the until modern times has been through the human voice, uh, you know, in the air. And uh, Dante said that uh, that there are two kinds of language and the more noble of two kinds of language is the spoken word, that speech is our native tongue. It's how we all learn to uh, to speak. We all you know, we hear and then we speak. Only many years later do we learn to read and write. That's yeah. our second language, formal language. But, you know, so when you when you read aloud to somebody, you are speaking to them in their native tongue. And that's and, and this is there's a whole other side to this, which I absolutely love when it comes to reading, you know, in groups, let's say to a group of. Well, if I were reading to all my children at once, it would be children of mixed ages, but also in classrooms when teachers read to children of mixed abilities, you know, there is this it's it's. I keep thinking it's the idea of leveling. It's not really leveling. It's like uplifting everyone in the same, like a rising tide lifting all boats, let's say. Yes. Because, you know, because the the teacher transforming literature into the spoken word, into our first language, as Dante said, makes it accessible to everybody. It means it's accessible 
to the children who struggle with reading in the same way as it is to the children who are stars at reading and get, you know, high marks on their SATs. So there is this, and, and, and again, for one of the reasons I think that, uh, you know, in the home context and certainly at schools, it's really worthwhile trying to read not necessarily challenging literature, but, 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 but books that are more advanced, more sophisticated, uh, because it may be, you know, the listener's only opportunity to have a real engagement with those texts. They may just be too much for them to take on in private, or they may not have the, you know, the desire to open classic literature and read it for themselves. You know, it can seem daunting. It can seem far away or remote or, or, or too difficult. And again, translated, as it were, through the eyes and coming out the mouth, it becomes something that they can drink in and enjoy and really get the benefit of. Oh, beautiful. We are out of time, Megan. Oh, my goodness. This has been an enchanted uh, half hour. <laughs> <laughs> I have loved talking to you, Lisa. I think I love your mission. I think harvesting happiness is is a magical thing and a great goal for all of us. And thank you for thank you for having me on. Oh, well, thank you for being here with with all of us to learn more about the work of Megan Cox Gurdon, please visit her website, www.megancoxgurdon.com, on Twitter at Megan Gurdon, and on Facebook and Instagram, those pages are The Enchanted Hour. And the book we've been speaking of is The Enchanted Hour, The Miraculous Power of Reading Aloud in the Age of Distraction. Thanks, Megan. Hey, thank you, Lisa. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. to the show. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this episode. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal, available 24-7. And we're talking about the power of our words and how reading aloud impacts both our hearts and our minds. My next guest is Tim Lomas. Dr. Tim Lomas has been a lecturer in positive psychology at the University of East London since April of 2013. Tim completed his PhD at the University of Westminster and in 2012, where his thesis focused on the impact of meditation on men's mental health. Since 2013, Tim has published numerous papers and books on topics including positive psychology theory, mindfulness, Buddhism, linguistics, and gender. His work has been featured in articles in prominent publications including Time Magazine, The New Yorker, Scientific American, The Atlantic, The Psychologist, and today with me on Harvesting Happiness. Welcome, Tim Lomas. Thanks for joining us on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's, it's good to be with you. Uh, well, it is exciting because we're, I really want our audience to learn more about untranslatable words and how they can impact our well-being, which is the subject of translating happiness across cultural lexicon of well-being. That's the first book. And the second is how to harness the power of the untranslatable words to help us live our best lives possible. And that's the Happiness Dictionary, of course. 
That's it, yeah. Well, I'm happy to talk about them with you. I've been working on them for the past, it feels like forever. And now they're out there in the world, so I'm keen to, keen to share them if I can. Well, you are a man of many words. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. So let's talk about these untranslatable words, like yeah, chutzpah, yeah. right? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. I mean, this, it's such a fascinating topic. I've just become immersed in it. Um, over the last few years. And it's really curious because I don't have a background in linguistics per se. So I came at this relatively fresh a few years ago. Since kind of hitting upon the, the concept and, uh, you know, immersing myself in the literature and starting my project, I've just become fascinated by the whole, the whole area. And it seems almost inexhaustible in its, you know, interest and richness. Well, it seems like every culture has a a collection of words that are used that everyone understands does not have a complete like spot on perfect one or or two word uh, definition of the word and yet it embodies a, a feeling or a sense that is indescribable except by that word like chutzpah yeah it's it's so interesting so i've been trying to think about you know, the nature of these untranslatable words and to, ver- to like develop a theoretical perspective to try and understand how they work and what their function is. And I've kind of arrived at this idea of language being like a, a map that helps people navigate and orient around the world. Um, and then this idea of a map has been, I think, used a lot in, in linguistics and philosophy over, over the decades. Um, so drawing on that idea... And then noting that different cultures seem to have subtly different maps. So it's as if perhaps we're all in this uh, experiential territory, but different cultures kind of map that territory in different ways. Perhaps they configure it differently or carve up the boundaries in subtly different ways. So that means that they can, I guess, delineate and label a particular region of this world with a, a label and then if in our own cultural language we haven't kind of delineated that particular region, then it's going to not be exactly translatable because we don't have an exact equivalent. So that would make it, in kind of my view, uh, an untranslatable word. I mean, you, it's the notion of untranslatability is tricky though because you know not not all linguists like that term because some people would say, well, um, you know, it's really hard to translate most words completely from one language to another because there's always subtle nuances to get lost in translation but uh so on the on the other side of things some people say well you can always give a rough explanation of what a word means in another language with a description or something so it's not literally untranslatable but i always take it there's not this exact equivalent in one's own language and i think that's to do with like i say something about the way we language maps the world around us and our internal world and that, that different languages map this in subtly different ways that's the way I've been trying to look at it. You have launched the Positive Lexicography Project, which aims to catalog foreign terms for happiness that yeah. don't have direct English translations. Give us give us a couple examples. Oh, oh there's so many. So I, I never know where to begin when people ask this because there's nearly a thousand words now. Some of my own favorites, though, because, you know, personally, I'm uh, I try and follow a Buddhist path and I'm very interested in ideas and practices relating to Buddhism. So you find a lot of terms 
in Sanskrit or Pali or you know Japanese or Chinese that are really interesting. Um, and some of them, you find they're, they're working their way into becoming used by kind of English speakers, like the word karma is really interesting. That kind of ethical causality or the Dharma, you know, the word for the Buddhist path as a whole and laws and teachings and so on. Um, so there's so many resonant terms in relation to Buddhism and then other spiritual traditions. Let's talk about uh, karma for a second. You know, the, the laws of cause and effect, right? What goes around comes around. And yet we see it even in the media, you know, in products advertising for credit. You're getting your credit score on American TV. Yeah, well, that's another fascinating thing to observe, the way in which terms do get then taken into other cultures and used in ways, and often, and it can be used in ways that discordant with their original meanings or uh, used in, I guess, ways you wouldn't have expected, like in advertising, for example, or, um, or yeah, the way I think lots of Buddhist-related ideas seem to get used in advertising, like, uh, uh, yeah, meditation and mindfulness, I guess, quite persuasive. Um, yeah, so the whole process of where, of how words and ideas kind of transform from one culture to another, it's, it's really fascinating and there's so much could be said there. Along that thought line, the word nirvana. Exactly, yeah, Is that's another one. Another good one, right? Yeah, because I was thinking about this the other day and I saw, um, I saw this advert for a beer company and they said this would help their drinkers enter beer nirvana. <laughs> and I think that's quite far removed from how the Buddha would have kind of talked about nirvana. So, you know, in that sense, you're getting a an idea that's, well, in being used that way, it's really changing its meaning and kind of words do that as they can move from one context to another. So that's a kind of tricky thing when trying to think about these untranslatable words is how to be as true as possible to the original meanings and to try and do them justice and to not feel that you're, you know, diluting them or watering down or ironing out the nuances and complexities. So it's a, it's tricky. And I, you know, I always think if, if, as an English speaker, if I'm engaging with these untranslatable words, I'm never going to know the, the full layers of meaning encompassed within a word compared to someone who's brought up within the culture that created the word. But I can yeah. still hopefully do my best to, you know, try and understand it as fully as I can and, you know, understand it in a way that's consonant with those original meanings. Give us a couple of examples that uh, we might not be familiar with. I'm um, looking at the word, and I hope I pronounce it right. Is it Sisu or Sisu? Sisu, yeah. That's a, that's another one that's kind of close to my heart, because that was actually one that sparked this whole project off. I don't know if it's worth me mentioning that. When I was attending this conference in 2015, and I saw a presentation on Sisu by this Finnish researcher, Amelia Lati, and she was describing it as this sort of form of extraordinary courage and determination that's kind of central to Finnish culture and identity and it's just a beautiful presentation but then she was also making the point that, that the Finnish people happen to have you know identified it sexualized it but um it's also potentially a, a more universal quality that people you know people anywhere could perhaps tap into or access so it's, I mean it's interesting because conceptually it's, it has overlaps with terms we have in English I guess, like grit, for example, or courage, but then seemingly from, you know, what I gathered from her work and other sources, it's not reducible to those terms. There's something uh, important in kind of keeping it in the notion as it is. It's not reducible to these other English terms. Um, 
So, yeah, that's a really nice example. Like I say, that's kind of close to my heart because that helped kick off the whole project because it was after that talk that I got the idea to start the lexicography. And it does um, closely relate to, to the word chutzpah, right, which means really uh, having, well, having balls is the, is this probably the straight, <laughs> to, to, you know, definition of it. But it really is about having like moxie, grit. Exactly. Like, like the chutzpah one, it, it, it's kind of having balls, but it's also having a bit of nerve, maybe even some cheek. And it's, it's interesting because, yeah, there's these kind of constellation of related words, but you have to invoke them all to try and describe it, and you can't just substitute one for another. So it's not exactly the same as, I don't know, uh, grit. It's quite different. So, um, so yeah, there are there's a lot of lot of words like that relating to character, I suppose. And um, so there's like another one, like one related to sisu is a a Swedish one, orka, which is to kind of have sufficient energy or enthusiasm for a task. Um, ah. It's nice what I've been trying to do is try to analyze all these words thematically. So I try and group them according to their themes. Because I figured that would be a nice approach to make sense of all these words rather than, say, grouping them necessarily by by language, say, or region or culture, but trying to see how they interrelate thematically. So um, finding words relating to character and then trying to group them together and then... I've actually got six main themes, which is quite nothing. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Dr. Tim Lomas about his two new books, Translating Happiness, a Cross-Cultural Lexicon of Well-Being, and The Happiness Dictionary, Words from Around the World to Help Us Lead a Richer Life. Both are out now. And to learn more, please visit Tim on his website at www.drtimlomas.com. On Twitter, he's at Dr. Tim. Lomas. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book. Are we happy yet? Eight keys to unlocking a joyful life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious. And happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. We are talking about the power of our words and words do matter. And reading aloud does impact both our hearts and our minds. Let's return to the conversation with my guest today, Tim Lomas. Tim, prior to the break, you were talking about some of your favorite words when I so rudely had to cut you off. And I want to know more. I want to know more words that inspire you positively um, in your work, in your conversation and in positive psychology. Sure. Um, so where to start? Some of the words I really love are, there's quite a few Japanese words relating to these kind of aesthetic sensibilities that 
I find so fascinating and intriguing um, because just as a bit of background, when I'm thinking about the words as a whole, I almost divide them into two categories. And then um, some of the words like identify things I'm already familiar with, like an experience I would already know. Um, and it's just useful to have a label for it. And I didn't have that label before. Um, so um, I don't just brings no why this one comes to mind, but there's a, a Dutch word called Feestvarken, which is party pig. Um, but it's just it just it describes the person in whose honor a party is thrown. Right? So that's just okay, a nice label. Like, okay, I know that. That makes sense. And I can I would know in which context that would apply. But then other types of words, they describe a phenomena and experiences that I don't necessarily know and haven't had familiarity with. And then they're so much more intriguing because I try to kind of takes me outside myself and think, what would it be to see the world in that way? So some of these Japanese aesthetic terms uh, strike me as being someone like that. So um, give us a couple. Like, so there's one called Wabi Sabi. Um, mm. Maybe I have had some experiences of that. It's hard to tell. But this mode of perception where you see kind of beauty and depth and resonance in things that are weathered or aged, like an old tree in winter or a ruined castle. I mean, I suppose I can have, have been in environments where I've seen something and kind of been somewhat entranced by it. So that, I think I may have some familiarity with that. And there's a related one called Mono no Owari. I think that's how you pronounce it. And that's relating to sort of perceiving the ephemerality of the world and its transiency, but also it's kind of discerning a certain beauty in that very transiency. So a kind of archetypal image there is the cherry blossoms, because they're obviously so beautiful, but that beauty is almost heightened by the fact that you know that they're only there for a, a couple of weeks, what have you. So um, it's this seeing beauty and I guess change and the passage of time and then having this heightened sensitivity to that. I think it's also sometimes described as like a pathos of things or of the world. So just kind of, I guess, a sensitivity really to the world and how it's changing. So some of those ones I find just really fascinating to, to dwell on. And when I do, it kind of gets me in a different mindset. And um, I just say, they describe me things that I think I may know vaguely, but perhaps don't. This invites a journey of like discovery and contemplation, because it's not something that's immediately obvious to me what it signifies, what the word signifies. So I have to really reflect on it and try and you know, read about it and then dwell on it and then try and cultivate that, that sensibility. So I find those sorts of words really interesting in terms of opening my eyes to new ways of maybe looking at things or thinking about. One of the favorite Japanese words of mine is I believe it's Japanese is kintsukuroi oh, to, re- yeah. to right to repair with gold. Yeah, that's an amazing one too, eh? Yeah, let's yeah. talk about it. Well, because I kind of I wrote about that kind of kind of linking it somewhat to the wabi sabi aesthetic, but it's also just a really interesting metaphor, like well, process and metaphor in its own terms, like as a way of engaging with objects in the material world, and then I I often. I'm sure I'm not the first person to think this. Also, kind of, it's an it's a good metaphor, I think, for the human character and human soul. You know, um, this nice yeah. we're all kind of flawed and vulnerable, um, but then that is kind of those vulnerabilities are you know make us who we are, and there can be real some value in them. I often, you know think of that 
that Leonard Cohen song about there's a crack in everything, which is how the light gets in. Exactly. Exactly. And in the process of Kintsukuroi is a ceramic art. Yes. Yes. It's ceramic art, kind of, which I think is a beautiful art process in itself. But I also figured it's a kind of almost a, a good metaphor for personal growth and trying to look at how we look at our character and how we can try and make the best of who we are with all yeah. our kind of flaws and vulnerabilities. Or having becoming more beautiful for having uh, endured whatever that trauma or hardship is and emerging in a stronger, more resilient, beautiful state as a yeah. result of, of, right. of the wound. Yeah. And, you know, valuing our courage and coming through it and who we are as people and who we might become as a result and trying to make the best of our situation, whatever that be. Um, so I found that quite an inspiring and a motif. Yeah, it's what it is one of my favorite because I yeah, in the work that I do with clients, it is about post-traumatic growth, right? Taking what happens to us and reframing those events in in our lives that needed to happen in order to become self-actualized. Yeah, and I think it, you're right. It's a really kind of I at least find it a really helpful way of looking at you know things that happen and do happen. Um, and a way of kind of processing them and trying to see the, yeah, a way to make sense of them in a way that's meaningful. I want to talk a little bit about your previous life because you've got a really cool previous life. <laughs> <laughs> you you were a singer in a ska band, a, a psychiatric nursing assistant and an yeah. English teacher in China. <laughs> yeah, there's been a range of things, actually, as I was kind of meandering through my 20s. Yeah, no, the Scar Band, I mean, that does obviously sounds cool on paper. In reality, it had its ups and downs. But no, it was good. We did that. I mean, tried to do it almost full time for five years and um, successful in some senses. I mean, not financial. We didn't make that much money, but we played a lot of gigs and recorded a lot. And just I love that, too, because I mean, not just the performing, the songwriting, uh, touring, these adventures you have. Um, so that was a beautiful experience. I love doing that. Um, so I miss that. It feels like quite a while ago now. Uh, another life, really. And then, yeah, I so sort of somewhat at the same time, because I, I didn't earn that much from the band. So I also worked as a psychiatric nursing assistant, partly because I kind of thought I would want to get back into psychology eventually because um, that was my undergrad degree. So I spent six years sort of part-time working in the hospital there. And, you know, that's obviously a bit of a strange contrast with the band life. And yeah. Both things at the same time. But, you know, both both very kind of meaningful and important to me in their own different ways. Um, but, yeah, that was just an interesting five or six years because I basically had six years between finishing my undergrad degree and then starting a PhD. So it was just a lot you know, a strange time full of unusual experiences and, um, but, you know, I wouldn't change it because, you know, sometimes I think, oh, what if I'd have gone straight into a PhD and, um, but as it was, I'm grateful for, um, you know, having had these different experiences and trying something different. Well, I think it's a very cool, uh, cross-section of, of, uh, professions, but, you know, I, 
I can see how it, 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 it all came together, right? You know, when we're dealing with the human mind and the human heart, you know, and in mental health, oftentimes the use of words is elusive, you know? I can see how the, this brought you to where you are today. And, you know, the, the, the absence of being able to describe what one is, is feeling, mm. right, That's is... Good. You know, uh, what is what is the word? I think it's a alexithymia, right? Which means yeah. without words. Yes, exactly. No, it's really fascinating. Yeah, in retrospect, looking back on it, things like experiences of songwriting and being in the band, and that's always a, just an elusive pursuit of trying to express yourself, you know, through songwriting as best you can. And then with that, you're always coming up against limitations of language and articulacy and not being able to quite capture a feeling that you want to in a, in a verse or in a word. Um, and then similarly, yes, in the hospital, you find so many, I guess, experiences would just be, you know, ineffable. You couldn't articulate them in words and people, well, people in the hospital, but I think people generally, we struggle with language because it's this, I mean, language is an amazing tool, but it's an imperfect one because we struggle to find the quite the right word for things or to work out exactly what we are feeling and to put the right label to it. And the more I think about language, just the more fascinating it is. It's like at the sea in which we swim and we often don't pay attention, like the fish don't pay attention to the sea or whatever yeah. it goes like. But like language is the sea in which we swim. We don't often pay attention to that sea, but actually everything is like filtered through language. And then the more you kind of turn your attention to it, the more fascinating and tricky it becomes. We are nearly out of time. Dr. Tim Lomas, thanks for joining us on the show today. It's been great felicitating with you. There's there's another good one. <laughs> it's been great to be with you. Thank you. Oh, but listen, hang on. Don't go away. To learn more about Dr. Tim Lomas, please go to his website, www.drtimlomas.com. On Twitter, he's at Dr. Tim Lomas. And the books we're talking about today are his newest, Translating Happiness Across Cultural Lexicon of Wellbeing, and The Happiness Dictionary, Words from Around the World to Help Us Lead a Richer Life. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests, Megan Cox-Gurdon and Tim Lomas, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU-RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.